Bible worm, Bible worm, reading the Bible with Bible worm. Welcome to Bible Worm, getting to the core of the biblical text. I'm Dr. Amy Robertson, Director of Lifelong Learning at Congregation Or Hadash in Sandy Springs, Georgia. And I'm Dr. Robert Williamson, Professor of Religious Studies at Hendricks College and the founding pastor of Mercy Community Church in Little Rock. We're here every week to discuss the biblical text, both as biblical scholars and as people of faith, one Jewish and one Christian. This week, we begin the Gospel of John, reading chapter 1, verses 1 through 18. We glide between John's images of word and light and life and grace and truth and try to hold all of them in our hearts, if not in our minds, at once. We try to place ourselves historically as we read, recognizing in this poetic, mystical, and awfully complex bit of text the peak of the period of differentiation between the Jewish community and this budding Christian one, and we grapple with the most fruitful way to read and understand that situation in our very different historical context. Thanks for being with us. Hello, Bobby. Hey, Amy. How are you today? I am okay. I know I know. we usually like chit-chat about random things before we start, but I just have to say, this text is so crazy! And then we can, <laughs> yeah. we can chit-chat about other things. But that's really like the, that's the small talk on my mind. Yeah, so we're in John 1 today, which is the prologue to the Gospel of John. And it is, can you say a little bit about like... What you mean when you say this text is crazy? (laughs) Well, I mean, we'll, you know, we'll like dive into it when we get into it. But I felt like, like I read the first verse, like literally like over and over for 10 minutes. And then I was like trying to drop, I was trying to draw pictures of what it was saying, like trying to understand the, the progression of meaning over the course of, oh, just that one (laughs) Yeah. Just that one verse. And I was like, am I tired? Maybe I'm tired and yeah. I just need to go to bed. So I went to bed and then I woke up this morning and read it and I was like, hmm. <laughs> it's, it's, it's still, still I mean, weird. I do, I have a, I did come up with a picture in my head that oh, I'll right share on. with you and you can tell me if you think it's a valid picture. But, you know, I always say when we move into reading poetry, I'm like, okay, Amy. Yeah. Take a breath, shift gears. This yeah. is a different you need to employ a different mode of reading. And I felt that again yeah. here, like take a breath. Things got weird, <laughs> <laughs> you know, and, and it's just a, it's a different, it, it feels like, like it's mystical. And you yeah. know, it reminds me of the, the Jewish text, the Zohar, where you read it and you're like, what are they? Yeah. What? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Now yeah. I will say, so we're shifting uh, this week into the Gospel of John, where we will be for the remainder of most of the re- remainder of the season up until mm-hmm. Easter, anyway. And so, yeah, John is a little bit of a different kind of gospel, and the prologue of John, which we're reading today, is very much a different kind of a uh, piece of literature. There's an argument about exactly what it is. Uh, many scholars think this, at least parts of this text, were actually parts of an early Christian hymn that then the gospel writer has sort of taken and incorporated it, worked back and forth between the hymn and a narrative to create a framework for the gospel of John. After this text, the gospel of John reads, I mean, it's still got sort of a mystical philosophical 
side to it that we did not mm-hmm. see in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. But it all, uh, it has more of a narrative character to it after the prologue. So this thing kind of stands of it, out. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> this particular little section is one of the more kind of poetic, mystical sections of the of the whole New Testament, really. Yeah, that's really interesting. That the theory that there was a, a hymn incorporated, yeah, into a, into a narrative that, yeah, that would make some sense. But you're right. Like, I mean, and and as a Christian reader, you're like, oh yeah, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. We're like, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and so that it takes you like <laughs> two days like, of like diagramming. <laughs> yeah, and so it's helpful to me. Uh, as someone with for whom that concept has become like, oh, yeah, blah, blah, blah. Like uh, for you to say, what? wait a second, what is that about? It's actually super helpful because then it makes me go back and say, wait a second, what is that about? And it's actually kind of a complicated verse. It just sounds simple because we say it so much. And yeah. so like I, I love reading these texts with you for that reason, because you make me stop and say like, oh, yeah, this is like this is weird and complicated and confusing and it does need more attention that I uh, sometimes give it. Yeah, you know, I I feel like I say this every year when we start our New Testament reading, but I also feel like it's important for me to publicly name it every year. Uh This is complicated ground for me. Like when we were reading the Hebrew Bible, I was reading it as a scholar of the Hebrew Bible and as a Jewish person for whom that scripture is operative in my life. And when we transition to the New Testament, I'm a scholar of text who is vaguely familiar with this historical period, but I'm not a scholar of the New Testament. Yeah. And, you know, as a, as a reader of text, I want to try to uh, relate to the text personally, you know, maybe spiritually draw out the meaning I can, empathize with the perspective in the text, sort of try it on. And that is a really complicated thing for a Jewish person to do with the New Testament. Yeah. For a lot of reasons, because it's its its own testament, and I don't need to argue with it as someone who's outside that faith tradition. Like, that doesn't seem appropriate. But but then I also sometimes, you know, get sort of startled when all of us in the text turns, and it's like those terrible Jews. And I'm like, oh, uh, <laughs> yeah. like, what? why am I reading this text? So I, it's, I do it with you, Bobby, because I know you and I trust you. And it's, uh, it makes me nervous. It It's a little... It's a vulnerable thing to try to do. But we'll do it again. Let's do it again this Let's year and see how it goes. Yeah. Let's do it again. Now, I appreciate yeah. so much that you take the time to read with us. And uh, and I appreciate, especially that last the last question that we ask about what do you do with this text in the life of your own community? Like, I mean, the obvious answer is like, yeah. n- not, <laughs> nothing. Ooh, nothing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And so to think, one of the things that I really appreciate about reading with you is, you know, when we as Christians read the New Testament, we want to, to read things that form us as a community that are good neighbors to other communities in the world, right? And so one of the things that you do that's super helpful is to say, here is a place where this text is not neighborly or where this text feels aggressive or dangerous. And so when we can be aware of that, that is mm-hmm. super helpful. And a lot, this text is so embedded in a Jewish background. Yeah. And so being able yeah. to say like, you know, when I read this, thinking through my Jewish tradition, this is where my head goes. Oftentimes that opens up things for me that I miss not really having that background. So I I appreciate it so much. And I do recognize uh, that it is a complicated thing for you. And that sometimes these New Testament texts, and unfortunately, I think you're going to find maybe John more Mm -hmm. than some others, can be read 
as being aggressive against Jews in a particular way. Mm-hmm. And so we'll, we'll see how that goes. Some of that, I think, is a Christian misreading of the text. Mm, that's but interesting. But some of it, I think, is actually John. It's actually in the text. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 It's yeah. there. You know, we, we talked in the Bible Room Collaborative. We were talking about this. And one of the things is trying to think about differentiation. And mm-hmm. it's sort of that process that, you know, teenagers go through as, yeah. as you're very familiar, like yeah. they're your kid, <laughs> yeah, everything's yeah. great. And then they need to differentiate. And so there becomes sort of an aggressive like attitude about where they've come yeah. from. And then there's a resolution yeah. later. And John is one of the later gospels. It is the latest gospel probably of the canonical gospels anyway. And you can see clearly in the Gospel of John a differentiation process going on where they're saying, we come out of Judaism, yeah. but we're not Jews anymore. We are not Jews anymore, yeah. But they haven't quite gotten to this place where they can t- say, talk about what they are without talking about yeah. what they are no longer. Yeah. And so that creates a tension which you know made sense in the first century, uh, yeah. may not make as much sense in the 21st century. That's such a helpful context because I have thought of it as you know a, a sort of sibling argument or the way that, you know, that Americans fight with each other about issues of values and can really use very, like, pretty extreme rhetoric in some ways because we see ourselves all as a piece. And so it feels very personal. The fights feel very personal. We're fighting for our own identity. But your point is, is is a really, I think, important extension of that, that it's not just this sort of infighting. It's that it's the breaking away. It's the differentiation. And it's so, yeah, it's sort of the height of that yeah. tension, defining yourself against something. And this is the moment that gets canonized That's right. <laughs> that That's we keep right. reading over and over again. And so, you know, that just, that just is what it is. And I think it's really helpful to, yeah to name it, name it. I think all of that's right. And, you know, the difference between when it was written, the power dynamics between when it was written and when it was canonized mm-hmm. are also mm-hmm. important. And, the, you know, the Christian yeah. community was small, fledgling. The Jewish community was well-established. By the time this becomes canon, then the Christian community has more or less become the religion of the Roman Empire and has mm-hmm. an enormous power behind it. And so that flips, like, yeah, a minority community trying to identify itself against its, its majority community that it's coming out of is one kind of thing. But when you flip those roles and now you have the more powerful community is also the one that has a sense of aggression, then that creates all sorts of issues that were not there in the original writing. Yeah, right, right, right. No, I think you're right. You're right, you're right. But we will deal with all of that kind of stuff more directly in the spring when we get back Mm -hmm. uh, into the narrative lectionary after Christmas. Mm-hmm. Today, we're trying just to deal with John 1, and we're doing it on the fourth Sunday of Advent. And so we'll try to have that as a little bit of a background. And then we'll think a little bit more as we really dig into the gospel a little bit later about how do we frame our, our thinking about yeah. John as a whole and all of these kinds of issues that, that you and I are talking about. So we are reading today John chapter 1, verses 1 through 18, and I am reading out of the NRSV. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through him, and without him not one thing came into being. What has come into being in him was life, and the life was the light of all people. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not overcome it. Uh Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. That is one of the most beautiful <laughs> passages in all of the New Testament in my in my mind. I don't 
It's not simple to say what that means exactly, but it's just such lovely poetry. Yeah. At least that's the way I, at least I think it's very lovely. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, I have. uh, So first, let me ask this like basic sort of translational question. Is that, is that, I have all these notes in my edition that like, or maybe it reads this way, or maybe it's this way. Mm -hmm. And, and it's not that it significantly changes the meaning i guess but but this is sort of the 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 known translation you feel good with this translation yeah i think that translation is the best we're going to yeah it's get. as good as any translation so there are some other translations yeah. that would also be good translations of that passage but there's nothing in the nrsv's version that i think is you know like what are what are they doing yeah yeah. There is one issue, um, translational issue in verse five, which I, this is kind of an odd moment to talk about it, but that verse, the light shines in the darkness and the mm-hmm. darkness doesn't extinguish it. The Greek there is katalambano, which can mean to overcome or to extinguish. It mm-hmm. can also mean to understand or to comprehend. Oh. And, which is very different. Mm-hmm. Very different. And so you have to make a translational choice there about which one you think. And so the NRSV, and I'm reading the Common English Bible, have both said the darkness doesn't extinguish the light or overcome the light. But one could likewise say the darkness did not understand or comprehend the light. Which changes a lot of things. Mm -hmm. It changes a lot of things. Well, and another difference in the translation, my translation says the darkness, there's a tense issue. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness did not overcome it. Yeah. You know, actually, you're, you're right about that. Um, it's interesting in, in this prologue that the verbs about the darkness are past tense and yeah. the verbs about the word are present tense. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's in the Greek. That's not a, That's yeah. And the so the, the CEB has actually glossed that a little bit, glossed over that a little bit, but you're right. Now, I don't know exactly what you do with that, that the things the darkness has done are, are past and the things that the word. Yeah. I mean, that seems pretty you know, to pull that out theologically, it seems like it would suggest that the darkness, there was a time when the darkness mm-hmm. was a threat, but mm-hmm. that time is no longer. And on the flip side that, you know, Jesus is eternal, yeah, both yeah, yeah. in the past and in the future. And so when you talk about what Jesus has done, or at least what the cosmic word yeah. incarnate in Jesus has done, you would talk about it as an ongoing thing. Okay, the cosmic word incarnate in Jesus. Let's talk about <laughs> yeah. that. I just love I just you just flip that out there like hey, Let's talk what? about that. Let's talk about that. Yeah. I mean, when I start, you know, reading in the beginning was the word. Yeah. My mind, of course, goes to Genesis 1, yes, right? It does. Where God speaks the world into creation yeah. through, you know, creation through speech. Yeah. And so, yeah, I could say in the beginning was the word, the word of God that said let there be light. Yep. But but there's more <laughs> there's more going on here than that. Do you I'm not sure I'm not sure sort of the best way to do this to sort of talk about my thought process as it unfolded, or is there something about the this idea of the, the pre existing word that that you want to layer in here? Well, I do have some thoughts about the pre existing word that I can layer in, but I'm actually really interested in your because you said you like you read this like verse and then pictures. you slept on it and then you drew it <laughs> and then you drew a diagram of it. And so I'm just really curious with, without having really, you know, an academic background on this verse, just trying to grapple with it from your own perspective, where, where did you come out? Like what is, what's in your diagram? Okay. So 
When you start with in the beginning was the word, I picture like my diagram has circles in it. And so there's like a big circle on top that's God. Mm -hmm. And then a little circle underneath it that's the word. Okay. And the word came from God and like goes down to earth and does stuff. And then when it said the word was with God, Mm -hmm. it was like that little circle was inside the big circle. Yes. And then the word was God was like, okay, I don't have any actual graphic design skills, but there's this program called Canva. Yeah. If you all Uh haven't played with Canva, you need to play with it because you can pretend you're a graphic designer (laughs) and you can make, you can make backgrounds like more and more translucent or like pictures more and more translucent. I'm sure there's actual terminology for this, but I don't know it. So I, I pictured like the, the line around the little circle getting like fading and fading and fading until it was just inside, you know, just all, yeah, all one with the big circle. That was, that was my picture. That's really lovely, Amy. <laughs> That's <laughs> I don't beautiful. know if it explains anything, but I d- it did give me a sense that like the word was not just, it was not apart from God. It was right. like an emanation. Yeah. Of God, like uh, it almost, you know, in the in the Jewish mindset reminds me of like the Shekhinah, which is, you know, maybe would be better drawn to some other idea within Christianity. But like the presence of God that, you know, is is sort of closest to humans on Earth. Yeah. An aspect of God or or, I don't know, something like that, but not just a word, not just something that's sent from God. Yeah. Now, what you're doing is you're trying to work out a very complicated understanding of Trinitarian theology based on one <laughs> verse in the Gospel of John. And you actually did a really beautiful job of it. Like, that was super amazing. <laughs> because, you know, later Christians are going to come along and say, okay, there are three persons in the Godhead. There yeah. is Father, Creator. There is Son, Savior. There is Spirit, Sustainer. And these three are the same, but they're not the same. And so the language is uh, three persons in one substance. Mm -hmm. And so they are, I mean, the way you described it, like, so they have their own sort of roles in the world, the economic trinity, but then they have this sort of internal connectedness, the imminent trinity. So they belong together. They are the same. They enter the world in different ways, but the ways are all related. Mm-hmm. Now, John did not have Trinitarian theology because he was about 200 years before the church was able to sort of say that. Like, that's a complicated that, thing yeah. to say. Yeah. So the fact yeah. that he sort of thought about it overnight and we're like, well, it's kind of like this Canva thing. <laughs> like, <laughs> that's super impressive. The church thought about it, you know, from Jesus's time to Nicaea. And, the, uh, and then they came up with Trinitarian theology in, you know, the early 400s. And so... Yeah, so John does not have that fully developed idea, but that's exactly like the way you describe it, I think is really close to what he's trying to say is like, look, there's this word that emanates from God that does some stuff in the world, but it's not, it's not different. It's not just in the world. It's also with God. And it's actually not different than God. It actually is God. And so like, how do you think about that? I don't know exactly, but, but John is trying to get us like where you ended up, I think is exactly what John is trying to get us to think about. Kudos. Well done. Uh, well, uh, yeah. Okay. But then there's verse two. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. We're all, we're, we're then it, then it starts with he. Yeah. Is that, is there a clear differentiation? Okay. 
I did take New Testament Greek a thousand years ago, so I could read the Septuagint, but I forgot it. So is he, is there an it? Is it clearly he? Is yeah. there? Yeah. Well, so, you know, in Greek, logos is masculine. The word is masculine. Yeah. And so in verse two is hutos, which is the masculine pronoun referring back to the word. Mm-hmm. And But in English, like the word would be an it. But yeah. the person you can leave a, that ambiguous in yeah. Ger- in German in Greek, but in English you have to choose. Right. So what the CEB does is it just keeps repeating the word over and over, which is not actually in the Greek. Nice, but it uh, avoids it dodges the bullet. <laughs> yeah. In the beginning was the word. The word was with God. The word was God. The word was with God in the beginning. Is the CEB. Yeah. yeah. And so it. Yeah. Hmm. But in Greek, it's all it's all gendered masculine, but it's hard to know. Like, have we shifted to talking about Jesus already? I kind of right. don't think so. Like, I think John is yeah. giving us a slow reveal that, hey, this word in, isn't going to be incarnated in Jesus, but we're not there yet. Right now, we're just talking about the logos, the, the, the cosmic principle. Yeah, that's so that's so interesting. And I think it's for me, it's really important to know that that question can be left open a lot longer yeah. in Greek. Mm-hmm. Yeah, It made me think as I was reading it, my dad likes to tell this story of when he was in, I don't know, college or something and was doing mathematical proofs and he finished one and it all worked out except something that was supposed to be negative was positive or something like that. And so he couldn't figure out why and he couldn't figure out how to fix it. And so he went through each line of the proof and made the like positive line a little smaller, like, <laughs> like so that hoping that his professor wouldn't notice at what point. <laughs> <laughs> it had gone from negative to positive, but it would just sort of slip. Gra- and I feel like that's, <laughs> that's, like that's what the note. Greek yeah. allows us to do. Like, yeah. That's exactly, kinda, that's beautiful. I love that so much. Little zero entry swimming pool here. You know, you started out a little bit ago saying when you read this and you read the word, you think Genesis 1 and God yeah. spoke in the word and the word and that things came into being. And, you know, that's exactly right in, in terms of how do you, how do you read this text? Like, the gospel writer, John, has a Jewish background, and he's thinking about things like that. And so clearly, if when you say the word in the beginning was the word, you're thinking of Genesis 1 mm-hmm. and the, the word being spoken and all the things coming into the world. You know, you might be thinking about the text that we did last week in Isaiah 55, and the mm-hmm. word comes mm-hmm. out of heaven like the rain, and it doesn't return without making the world abundant. Yeah. You might also think about the principle of wisdom, Hochma or Sophia mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. in Proverbs eight, mm-hmm. which without the, it's not the word there, it's wisdom there, but that clearly these passages are related where there's this, you know, aspect of God present in the beginning. Yeah. He was there for creation. So this text is teeming with res- references to the Hebrew Bible, which is saying, yeah, that was like that word. That's what we're talking about. And mm-hmm. we're going to slow reveal it and say like mm-hmm. that cosmic principle that was spoken over creation in Genesis 1 now is coming into the world as Jesus the human mm-hmm. but we're not there yet we're 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 working our way up yeah the other background yeah. to the word that i think is important is stoic philosophy about which i am no expert but in in stoic philosophy the logos was understood as kind of the organizing principle of the cosmos so it, it's the thing it is the the principle by which the whole world is held together. And so John, as a Hellenistic thinker back with a Jewish background, 
is connecting Hellenistic philosophy and that concept of the Lagos with Jewish tradition and that concept of the word and saying Jesus is, Jesus is going to be all of those things, uh, which is really kind of remarkable that he's yeah. in that one verse, he's pulled together Greek philosophy and deep reading of the Jewish scripture. And he has set the stage for saying this Jesus who we're going to see incarnate in a minute is like fundamental to all things. Yeah. That's, that's, that's a lot. <laughs> yeah. As you were as you were talking, I was thinking also there are just in terms of, of Jewish parallels, there are post Hebrew Bible Jewish parallels also. I think you mentioned Sirach, but you know, yeah. Genesis Rabbi, even from a, from even later, that that envision God sort of already working with wisdom or working with uh Torah yeah. in the process of creation. So yeah, this idea that there was I don't know, so some kind of wisdom, some kind of word, some kind of something accompanying God or as, as a, gosh, it gets so, my words get all turned around here. Yeah. But yeah, sort of in the process of creation does does cross over fully into Judaism too, just yeah. obviously taking a different angle on it. What you just said is really important and I, and I didn't mention it, that you're exactly right. The Torah in Ben Sira and elsewhere becomes not just the earthly book of the Torah, but the heavenly Torah. And Mm -hmm. this text is also connecting with that. And so Jesus is in that sense, in John's understanding, the incarnate Torah, which Mm -hmm. complicates the notion that Jesus is somehow anti-Torah, right? Which we'll get into later. But that seems to be part of what John is saying is that heavenly principle, which is embodied in the Torah, also embodied in Jesus. And so they can't be in fundamental conflict. Yeah. The other thing that I notice, or another thing that I notice in terms of like a comparison of the creation story is that here in these few verses, it, it starts with the word and then, and then it moves on in verse four to life. Yeah. And then it moves on to light. Yeah. And in the creation story, you get the word and then light and then life. Yeah. So like, it seems like, I mean, obviously there's some different reflection. They're not talking about literal light and literal darkness, but it's, I, I kind of like, I like the the poetry of that inversion. Yeah. It's really nice. You know, that, the, uh, that um, re- reference to life there is really important in the sense that, you know, what it's, the claim here is that all life came into being through the word. And so if the word turns out to have been Jesus or the, the Christ and person of the Trinity, however you want to talk about it, mm-hmm. then everything in that sense belongs to God through Jesus. Like there is no alienation from Jesus toward the world, right? The alienation, whatever alienation there is comes the other direction. But every, everything has its sort of proper origin in God through Jesus, according to this text. And so there's an intrinsic connection between, I mean, here it is, the, uh, through the word was life. Like life only exists through the word. Now, I don't know exactly how that's going to play out, but that's super important that, that there is a connection between, like an intrinsic connection, a fundamental connection between mm-hmm. Jesus and all 
life, not just human life, but all right. Life. Like creation. Like yeah. this is like the word in creation, the word yeah. that, you know, causes anything to be is here being, you know, drawn in parallel or equated with, with yeah. Jesus. So, yeah. Mm-hmm. This verse five, the light shines in the darkness and the darkness doesn't extinguish it or doesn't yeah. comprehend it. Mm. I, I mean, so now we've got this sort of introduction of either some kind of conflict or some kind of confusion. Mm-hmm. What, any thoughts about what, like where your head goes when you read that, that verse? I mean, it goes, I think, to two places. One is, you know, th- thinking back to the image that goes through my head in the creation story of like the, the darkness and, you know, chaos and void that was there beforehand and that Mm. you know i think we talked this year when we were reading that text about this sort of primordial light Mm -hmm. that was you know in some ways too too bright for humans and so that first light wasn't really the sun it was some other kind of light yeah but sort of affirming that you know throughout the hebrew bible there's this little bit of fear that those chaotic forces of darkness and chaos and you know watery void could they, they need to be controlled on an ongoing basis. Yeah. It's not just like they've been conquered and we're done. And, and the tense here suggests that maybe, maybe they have been conquered and it's done. But so, so one thing that I think of is that. And then the other is a psalm. And I don't even remember which psalm it is, which is terrible. But I'm sure I could um, ask Dr. Google. There's a, there's a line that I've always liked. Even the darkness is not dark to you. Mm. And so it made me made me made me think of that in that there there is a recognition that there is darkness but yeah it's only dark to us it's not dark to god i love that and so the the darkness did not overcome it is sort of the that the darkness does not seem dark in the presence of the of the light oh it's psalm 139:12 according to dr google <laughs> i love dr google that dr. guy Google's he so teaches helpful. me so many things i learned so many things some of them are false but that's okay yeah <laughs> Yeah. I'll trust on that one. <laughs> what comes what comes to your mind when you read that verse? No, I love that. I love I, I love that interpretation. And you know, my head goes different places depending on how I translate that verb, katalambano, yeah. whether it's did not overcome it or did not comprehend it. Mm-hmm. When I read it the first way, did not overcome it, my head goes to sort of reading it in the context of empire, of a post-colonial reading to suggest that there's something, a fundamental tension between this thing that Jesus is up to, this kingdom of heaven, and the the kingdoms, the empires of the earth. And so there's a conflict that ultimately Jesus, the word, is going to win. And and has won in such a way that you can talk about it in the past tense, even though it is yet still ongoing. And I, I find that really rich. And especially, you know, this gospel comes into being in the context of the Roman empire and, and thinking mm-hmm. about, I, I want to talk about that probably incessantly uh, until, you know, mid April about yeah. the ways in which that, that conflict can be read. When you read Catalambano as did not comprehend it. Now the issue is this, this could be obvious to people, but for whatever reason, it's not obvious to people. They just don't get it, which in my mind softens a little bit. It's, because now it's not that there's just like inherently conflict. It's that the conflict is born out of a lack of comprehension. And then you can think, well, okay, if only the world understood, then 
or the darkness understood, I guess, um, then then the conflict maybe doesn't actually need to exist. I have, the way that I am, I want to hold both of those and sort of yeah. contemplate them together. Yeah, I um, I think I hear what you're saying, and reading it as the darkness did not comprehend the light almost makes me more nervous because mm. I feel like now we're talking about people who didn't understand Jesus, i.e., the Jews in this text, are yeah. the darkness. Yeah. Which mm-hmm. no one wants to be called the darkness. No. No. Yeah. No. I think that's fair, and you know, I don't think that's all that John is saying, but I think that might yeah. be part of what John is saying. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yep. 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 Hello, fellow Bible worms. My name is Amy Marie Epp. I'm a pastor at Seattle Mennonite Church in Seattle, Washington. I support Bible Worm at the early worm level, $8 a month, and I consider that professional budget dollars very well spent. What I especially love about being a patron at this level is having access to those podcast episodes a week early, since I'm often working that far ahead on sermons or on worship prep. Also, by the way, I love the sticker, which I put on my water bottle immediately. Amy and Bobby's insight and wisdom have become an invaluable resource for me. I look forward every week to hearing them chew through that biblical text together with curiosity and with humor. It feels like I'm a part of the conversation. That's why I wanted to support them in making Bible Worm possible. It still feels like a gift each week to have that Patreon episode land in my inbox. I hope all of you who are listening will also consider becoming patrons. And now, back to this week's episode. So let's keep going. We get to meet John, but I don't think it's the same John. <laughs> John, the gospel. It's not the gospel writer, John. It's not the gospel author, John. Or the disciple, John. It is. It's yeah. yet another. It's a common name. Common name. Okay. Um, picking up in verse six. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify to the light so that all might believe through him. He himself was not the light, but he came to testify to the light. I just have to point out, I know this is probably like no big deal to people who read this text all the time, but like (laughs) it was confusing enough in the first paragraph that we had like the word and life and light and there was a he, but it never really (laughs) explains who the he is. Is the he the word or is the he someone else? And then finally in this paragraph, we get a human being, yeah, a man that could be the he. And then it's like, oh, but it wasn't him. (laughs) (laughs) But he was another he. It's another he. He wasn't the light. (laughs) There's another one. Yeah. Okay, I gotcha. Gotcha, John. Gotcha. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, this is one of the reasons why many people think that this uh, prologue as a whole is actually a composite text is because this little sort of three verses sits in here really awkwardly. Like you're mm. building up to this beautiful poetic thing about light and whatever. And then on the, now there's just a dude who's not the light. <laughs> I know. And yeah. it's very clear that he was not the light. I mean, do you think that that line in verse eight, he himself was not the light, is that clarifying just sort of like textually because of what I just pointed out? Or or were there folks who thought that he, that, that uh, John the Baptist would have been described as the light? Yeah, John the Baptist had quite a few followers. And, and actually in the historical record, John the Baptist is more significant than Jesus in the early sources that we have, like external to mm. the Bible. Mm-hmm, and so mm-hmm. I think that this is doing both of those things. It's clarifying yeah. what was just said. And it's also saying, hey, if you are still a disciple of John, like you need to get off that train and get yeah. on the Jesus train. Yeah. yeah. 
I love it. And I love this idea of testifying to the light. Mm-hmm. Like why would what why would light need someone to testify to it? Oh, that's so interesting. I mean, I imagine in my imaginings that this then suggests or maybe affirms that there is light and it's real and it's mm-hmm. witnessed, but not everyone can see it. If everyone mm-hmm. could see it, yeah. Testimony wouldn't be so important. Yeah. Or if everyone could recognize it, maybe that it's more John's. Yeah, I think that's I think that's exactly right. And we'll have some more issues about recognition here in a minute. Yeah, yeah. But there is developing in this text exactly that notion that there is there is this light in the world, but it is not recognized as such by everyone. And like that's an interesting concept, exactly as you're saying it. This word testify, this is the Greek is martyria, which can also mean witness, give testimony. It comes later to talk to to refer to actual martyrdom. Yeah, yeah. Giving one's life for the light. It doesn't it's not limited to that, but it can it can mean that. And so, yeah, so there is this sense, I think exactly as you're saying, that there is light in the world, but for whatever reason, people don't see it. And so it does require people like John to point like, hey, there's light over there. I have so many questions about why people can't see the light, but I think they'll come up more later in the text. So I don't, I don't know that I want to press on them here. I feel like there's not a lot to say about John. I was going to say, what else do you say about John? Is it just sort of, okay, great. So John's been introduced, as you pointed out, likely sort of, you know, added in there. We know he's not the light, but I I don't know what else to say about just those two verses. All right. So should we pick up in verse nine? I think so. Okay. The true light, which enlightens everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world came into being through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to what was his own, and his own people did not accept him. But to all who received him, who believed in his name, he gave power to become children of God, who were born not of blood or of the will of the flesh or of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and lived among us, and we have seen his glory, the glory as of a father's only son, full of grace and truth. Mm -hmm. How do you understand, I mean, I guess, how do you understand verse 10? Like, how do you think about he, again, we've gone back to he, or maybe it, so I don't know quite if it's like the word or the light. Now the word and the light seem to have somewhat merged. Yeah. And also, you know, I, and, and also into a, he was in the world and the world came into being through him, but the world didn't know him. Do you understand that as like, didn't recognize him? Wasn't like, are you picturing sort of like the, you know, fish swimming through the water that doesn't know what the water is because Mm. it's everywhere? Yeah. Or do you have some other way of understanding that the way that i tend to read that so the word for world there is cosmos which i think might be read as the civilized world or like human Mm. i think this is referring to the human structures that we call the world and not necessarily to like the environment okay and so when you say the cosmos came into being through jesus 
but the cosmos did not understand that it came into being through Jesus, you move very quickly into this idea that the structures of the world, civilization, the empire, thinks that it is its own origin, mm-hmm. right? It, it thinks that it is the ultimate reality instead of a contingent reality. Mm-hmm. And so I want to read this as being about empire, mm-hmm. not sort of narrowly, like his own people could be read as being about the Jews, and maybe it is. But if all life came into being through Jesus, that means all life is his people. And so it is the sort of global reality, which to me is productively anyway. I was going to say better, mm-hmm. but maybe I should just say productively read as the empire. But it's productively better. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So the empire thinks it is self-created, but in fact, the empire was created through Jesus, but it does not understand that. And so therefore it establishes itself in religious language in an idolatrous way as the ultimate reality when it is in fact anything but the ultimate reality. Yeah. No, that's really helpful. And I, I, I should not be surprised when you help to direct our attention back to the empire, but it's like every time I'm like, oh, right. (laughs) Yeah. <laughs> oh, right. Like those power structures are 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 the setting for everything. Yeah. You know, another image I had in my head reading this that I think could be merged with your thinking is, you know, the way that we don't see our parents as people necessarily, like Oh, yeah. <laughs> like even if we like sort of know they exist, like they I don't know, they don't uh, we can't quite we can't quite see them. We yeah. think we are autonomous from them and they just, you know, provide, <laughs> provide our basic necessities or, yeah. or whatever, which seems like it could work a little more easily with the idea of empire than, mm-hmm. than fish swimming in the ocean. But yeah, no, I think that goes, that goes back to like a lot of how, how you and I have talked about the notion of idolatry, like thinking that what, that the structures of society are, uh, are absolute and permanent and yeah ultimate instead of recognizing the light and Mm -hmm. the word and the he. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So you mentioned, you know, that in verse 11, you could read, he came to what was his own and his own people did not accept him as the Jews. Yeah. Or you could read it more broadly. Yeah. Than that. I guess I don't quite know how to think about that question. And I don't know whether it matters that much. I think one of the things we're going to see throughout the Gospel of John is that he's got his feet in two worlds, Mm -hmm. or maybe three. He's got his feet in two worlds that he is trying to offer an alternative to both of them. One is the Jewish religious tradition out of which he comes maybe Mm -hmm. specifically the one embodied in the temple, but we'll have to talk about that more as we go. The -hmm. other is the Roman Empire, the Hellenistic world to which he belongs. And he's trying to say, the real reality is this other thing, which is the kingdom of heaven, which for him is manifested in Jesus. And so when he says things like the people that belong to him did not recognize him, I think think there actually is a, a polemic about at least certain forms of Judaism. And mm-hmm. also, I think there's a polemic about the Roman Empire. I tend to want to talk about the Empire one because the anti-Jewish polemic makes me really uncomfortable. Like, yeah. Uh, yeah. And so, but I think y- 
your instinct to say like, no, but like, there's a reason that makes you uncomfortable and you ought to sort of like, you gotta, you don't have to deal with that Williamson. Like, I think that's super helpful um, because I do think both of those are, are there. Yeah, no, I think that's exactly right. And I think really importantly, as you know, as we, we started out saying that the particular moment at which this was written was a moment of really heightened tensions. Yeah. But it is, you know, that we don't, we don't have a like small minority Roman empire anymore. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. And so in terms of helpful direction for our spiritual lives now in the, in the world that we live in today. Yeah. I can, I can certainly see how it's less of a distraction in some way to, to look at the story in, in that lens instead of, uh, Jewish Christian relations. Yeah. Like I, as a, as a reader, you've probably figured this out about me, is I'm always trying to find ways of putting myself in the position of being critiqued yeah, <laughs> by, this, yeah, by yeah. the scripture. And so, like, I very much participate in the modern manifestation of empire. And so yeah. when this text is rubbing up against that, I think, okay, like, what does that have to teach me? Right. When As a Christian, when we read this as being about Jews, then it puts me in the position of being critical of someone else. And I don't see how that is helpful. Yeah, how that's fruitful. Oh, I love that. That was mm-hmm. such a, a good and succinct way of of drawing out, yeah, the way that you read consistently. That's mm-hmm. beautiful. Bobby, what does it mean to be children of God who are not <laughs> born of blood and flesh? Yeah. I mean, so this verse 13, not from blood nor from human desire or passion, so this is talking about like one's true lineage, I think, is not in, does not involve the reproductive process, right? Mm, so mm-hmm. there is a there is we saw this last year in in John the text about John the Baptist saying, "Don't say you're children of Abraham. I could raise up children of Abraham from these stones." I think a similar thing is happening here, which is to say, your biological lineage is not the lineage that matters. Mm-hmm. And there's a there's a polemic here about. F- folks who say like, I'm Jewish because I descend from Abraham. Yeah. And John is saying, that's not, you're not a child of, child of God because of that. You're a child mm-hmm. of God because you're born from above. And we'll see this come back again and again in, in the gospel of John. And so there is, the good news there is anybody has the capacity to become a child of God, right? Yeah. By, mm-hmm. by their coming to understand what God is about for John through Jesus. There is an there is also a an edge to it to say if you mm-hmm. think that you're a child of God because of your parentage that's just not true. Mm-hmm. I mean, it reminds me a little bit of the the section in Deuteronomy. I think it's in Deuteronomy that that requires well requires that that says circumcise your heart. Mm. Like you know, there is circumcision of the body, yes, but but there is you know that that doesn't do away with the sort of flesh and blood lineage of things, yeah. but sort of ups the ups the ante a little bit. Yeah. But I love what you're saying, especially as it then leads us into verse 14. Because I have this image in verse 14, the word became flesh and lived among us. And I think this is just from the notes in my study Bible. It's yeah. not from my own Greek reading. But that word lived among us is like tabernacled, like yeah. dwelled, mm. you know? And so you get this sense, I get this sense at least of, Sort of the word, the word became flesh doesn't really make sense to me, but the word was housed in a body. Yeah. You know, and sort of 
dwelled among us in that body to me like ties right back to to what you're saying like you are a child of god who is housed in a body yeah but that the lineage of your body is not the not the important thing so the reason i look like i'm struggling <laughs> is yeah because i like that idea and also it leads us into kind of a metaphysical dualism Mm-hmm. particularly sure about Jesus, which Christianity has historically rejected, which is to say the idea that there was some cosmic principle that sort of had a little flesh house, but was not <laughs> actual. <laughs> a little meat house. <laughs> yeah. That's <laughs> <laughs> so gross. <laughs> yeah. So for us, Jesus has to be both spirit and flesh in order for the story to sort of ultimately make sense theologically. Right. I guess I, I hear all of what you're saying. And I think that sort of metaphysical dualism in some way, if I, if I read 14 together with 13, I guess I would want to say maybe that whatever dualism I am suggesting in here would apply to all of us. Mm, like it's yeah. not that Jesus was any less human than we are. It's just that all of us think our bodies are more important in the ultimate scheme of things than they are. I am very much resistant to this line of thinking and I'm just trying to figure out exactly why, like the sort of escapism of the body really uh, mm-hmm. makes me mm-hmm. nervous. Cause I read child of God here as not about your, where does your like eternal soul belong, but like in what kingdom do you live your life mm-hmm. here and now? Right. So John is sort of famous, we'll talk about later, but for having a realized eschatology that the end time is already present. And so you've got sort of overlapping empires and you can be a child of Caesar. You can be a child of God. But you got to make a choice about it. Mm-hmm. You don't you can't just say because of who I am, I belong to this kingdom of God. If you live your life as though you belong mm-hmm. to the kingdom of mm-hmm. Rome. Mm hmm. And so I, I want to be very material about it, but I re- like, that's almost always true of me. It's like the, <laughs> the spiritual things make me kind of uncomfortable. And, and so, yeah, just take me with a grain of salt. No, 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 no. I think, I think this is a question I want to hold on to as we continue to read more John, even though you've already told me this part yeah. of John is, is a little different from the rest of John, because I may also be importing my bias that there is some sort of yeah, uh, separation of spirit and body in Christianity that is not so much the case in Judaism. And so so I may be Im- importing, I may be importing this into the text entirely. So I, I just, um, I don't know. I think, I think it is true that this will make this even more complicated, that there is a metaphysical dualism of body and soul that has taken shape in Christianity. I myself think that it, that it was an unfortunate development <laughs> in Christianity, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. I, I'm not sure that it's true to the biblical text, and so I'm pushing back against it. That's great. And so it's interesting, yeah. So yeah, so I'm sort of pushing on my own tradition back toward your tradition a little bit in that in that sense. No, I think I think the pushing is really good. You know, I I took a one class in the Gospels in college, the Synoptic Gospels, and. And realized over the course of that, that even though I was not Christian and even though I hadn't read those texts before, I had a lot of ideas from pop culture about what ought to be in those texts and that I was sort of looking for in those texts. And sometimes I saw it and sometimes I was quite shocked when I didn't see it. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, just because I'm a Jew reading the text doesn't mean I'm coming to it without 
many an unexamined bias. So I appreciate your yeah. your pushback on that. Well, we'll I love the very this. end of verse 14 in the CEB. We have seen his glory, glory like that of a father's only son, full of grace and truth. Mm. It's mostly that last line, full of grace and truth, that I really love. And that, that combination of grace on the one hand and truth on the other, I think is a really compelling combination. Oh, I love that. I love that. I love that. And I agree with you and say, draw that out a little bit. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I often think of truth as kind of cold and hard. Like it is either true or it is not true. And like there's an edge to truth. Grace, I read as very open, right? So, you know, you make your best effort and then the the gap is covered by the grace of the graceful one. And so when you say there is both truth and grace, to me, that says there there is a reality that we must grapple with and also embodied in that same reality is graciousness beyond compare. And that yeah. those two together, like if it's all grace, then you think, well, whatever, it doesn't matter. If it's mm-hmm. all truth, then you think you either right or you're wrong. Grace yeah. and truth together, there's something really, really. No, I love, I love that. It's like a slightly different iteration of justice and mercy. Yes, yes, yes. You know, that. Yeah, you don't you don't want to have only one. Yeah. Yeah. And then so. then when we get in the later in the gospel about this, there is a truth to, with which you have to either agree or disagree. Mm-hmm. Then you say, "Okay, like yes, and also there is grace upon grace." Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah, I love that. Shall we finish up? Let's finish up. Okay. So I'm picking up in verse 15. John testified to him and cried out, "This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks ahead of me because he was before me. From his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. The law indeed was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God. It is God, the only son, who is close to the father's heart, who has made him known. Hmm. You see, I stumbled a little on the reading there because I was like, wait, what? Yeah, I'm curious. I was curious about that stumble. Can you talk a little bit about what you were like? You were. It was a thoughtful stumble. I just, uh, I like need to draw some more pictures. I don't. I don't know what that (laughs) means. It is God, the only Son. Mm -hmm. Like, like it just came from this idea of this. Like we just had. This is the Father's only Son. So that I mean, I know this is like the beginning of Trinitarian. You know, like right. So we're right at that. But it, again, like it makes me think of that mathematical proof where it like starts with one thing and it just slowly edges into the next idea without, in a way that is very poetic, mm-hmm. but it doesn't quite explain itself. Yeah. Like it just, it goes from the father's only son to it is God, the only son mm-hmm. who is close to the father's heart. Like I just, I literally don't, I don't understand. And I mean, one of the things that I often say to my students is the early Christians were grappling after something that they could not fully articulate. And that same is probably true of us. In a really beautiful way. Yeah. Yeah. So in the grappling, there's some really interesting things going on. If you try to diagram it. (laughs) Yeah. It can make your head Yeah, right, right. This is not an equation. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think that's right. And I, I, I think it's so interesting to say no one has ever seen God but you've seen Jesus and Jesus is God. Therefore you've seen God, <laughs> right? Like yeah. uh, we made quite a move from yeah. 
can't see God to like, oh, but you already have. And yeah. this notion then becomes like, if you understand what Jesus was about, then you understand what God is up to uh, because they're the same. And mm-hmm. so, yeah, I mean, that to me, that's the sort of the, the simplified version of what I think John is, John is after here. But you're right, it, like the unsimplified version is exceedingly complex. It just, I feel like it's one of those things that like, again, I, I have to shift out of a, you know, out of this mindset that's trying to grasp onto things and like climb the wall, you know, like stop, stop (laughs) and like kind of let it wash over you and sit and mix around and tumble. Like it's not, you're not climbing a rock wall. Like it's the not, you know, that's, that's not what's happening here. For me, anyway, I'm not climbing a rock wall. No, <laughs> yeah, no, I think that's that's right. The place where I winced as you were reading was verse 17. I know, as the law was given through winced. Moses, so grace and truth came into being through Jesus Christ. And I was like, oh, <laughs> Ouch, that, that, makes, hurts my that makes me sad. Yeah. Well, and that was, you know, reading that verse. That was sort of part of what prompted me to feel like I again need to say, like, what am I doing? Yeah. Like, I don't know how to read this text because part of me wants to be like, well, that's patently false. Like, let me show you, let me show you how that's false, John. And then part of me was like, you know, that, that can't be my job to like argue with the perspective of the text. And, you know, like that's, that's, that's silly. I mean, so I will say grace and truth are a huge amount of my, Tradition and my texts and my world and my life and the idea that, you know, only law came from from the Hebrew Bible is crazy town. It just seems like crazy town. And I also want to say, like, okay, I'm trying to understand the perspective of this writer. So. So so I need to try to understand. I I, I don't know. I, I need to try to understand what it is what it is he's trying to say, what he didn't feel could be garnered from Judaism at that time. Yeah. That could be garnered from this sort of break off group from Judaism. No, I think that's really well said. And, you know, this concept of differentiation to me is helpful here again, mm-hmm. in terms of, yeah, it's sort of like the household in which John grew up <laughs> and he mm-hmm. has taken one part of it against which he wishes to push, which is this kind of authoritarian, mm-hmm. like strictness of legal mm-hmm. observation, which I mean, was an internal Jewish dispute in, in this period, right? 100%. About, yeah. 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 But there was also grace and truth all over other forms of Judaism. Yes. Mm-hmm. yes. Right. And this is, this is still, there are still arguments in the Jewish community yeah. as there are still arguments in other faith communities, in the, in the Christian, Christian community, community about yeah, like, absolutely. when is, when do we need to look to some kind of legal law, yeah. like legalish rule, rule-based yeah. system? And, and when do we, when do we not? So I think that's a really helpful way of thinking about it to say, yeah, so there is a tension here between authoritarian interpretations of religion and interpretations that include both grace, truth and grace. Mm-hmm. And yeah. Yeah. therefore we need to think about whether we are Jewish or whether we are Christian. Like there are all kinds of authoritarian forms of Christianity, which lack grace. Mm-hmm. They're all about truth or what truth is they understand it. Mm-hmm. And so then we say like, Oh, okay. What we're doing is rejecting one kind of way of being religious mm-hmm. over and against a more gracious way of being religious. 
-hmm. Instead of me as a Christian thinking like, oh yeah, Christians do that and Jews don't, it's much more useful for me as a Christian to say, which of those am I? Mm-hmm. And so I, that's, what the, that's what I do with this text is to say, mm-hmm. in John's context, what he wanted to do was push back on his Jewish tradition and say, we need to be more gracious. Yeah. Or for someone like me to say, like, I want to push back on authoritarian forms of my own religious tradition and be more gracious is, mm-hmm. is a useful, and, and leave it to other religious traditions to sort that out right. in their own religious tradition. Right, in their own, in their own religious tradition. And yeah. yeah, as we do, like as, yeah. as all kinds of religious traditions are in constant conversation about, um, you know, a, a, a while ago, ages ago, I don't know, last year sometime, <laughs> we were having a similar conversation and, and I think we sort of came down agreeing that like, you know, at the end of the day, if it really comes down, you, you come along as far as you can together. And at the end yeah. of the day, if you really can't agree, you know, go with grace. Yeah. No, I think that's, that's right. And, and that, you know, is certainly something that I can, Agree to you also. Well, Bobby, <laughs> I think I think we're at the time where you yeah. are going to help us wrap this baby oh, up. Yes. Good luck. <laughs> <laughs> I, as you could probably tell, I'm really drawn to this very first section. The word was life. The life was the light for all people. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness did not extinguish it. I just think there is so much there, especially in the season of Advent, which I mean is very much characterized by mm-hmm. lights in the darkness mm-hmm. and the lighting mm-hmm. of candles and, and all of these mm-hmm. sorts of things. And for me, the most useful way of reading that is to talk about empire, as we were saying, which claims to be the ultimate reality. And this text is saying empires think they are ultimate, but they are not. In fact, it is the word of God that is ultimate. And that word of God manifested in Jesus in the Christian tradition, knowable through understanding what Jesus was about, is a light that will overcome, has overcome, you can confidently say, uh, the darkness, the obfuscation of the empire. And so this text then becomes about where do you live your life, which is what I think Christmas is actually about to say there, there is a reality that is coming into being and it is alternative to the reality which claims to be the only reality and you need to understand that and you need to live your life in light of the true reality which is the reality of God's grace and truth. That also makes sense of that verb that could be understanding or could be overcoming. And so because you do not understand that the, the world in which you live is not the ultimate reality, you you live in a world of darkness. If you understood, the light would overcome. And so there is like an awake, you need to wake up and realize what's actually going on. This empire that you think is ultimate is not ultimate. There then that grace and truth can then overcome that way of being and open up a new possibility of life as a, as a child of God uh, in the world. That's really, it's really beautiful. And it's, yeah, that's really beautiful. And I, I love how you've pulled all the themes together in a way that really sits so well with this this time of year, this time of year on the Christian calendar. And, you know, also I feel, especially with that metaphor of darkness and light, I, I feel like spiritually a connection to it at this time of year 
because it's so dark, you know, yeah. like, yeah. and, you know, and of course we have a, a, in the Jewish community, a celebration of light at this time of year too. And it's yeah. hearing you talk is making me think of this Midrash, this Jewish story about creation where uh, Adam sees the sun going down, like at the end of the day, and it gets very dark and he thinks the world is ending. Like he thinks that's, uh, that's it. Like that yeah. was the end of creation. And, and he and, and Eve sort of build this like sort of protective, like, you know, it's, it's easy to think in the darkness that that's, that's all there is. Yeah. And, and then of course the sun comes up again in the morning and, and Adam realizes not only that that wasn't the end of the world, but also that, you know, it's, it's not his own, his sins are not actually that powerful. <laughs> yeah. You know, like that, that it wasn't his, you know, uh, it wasn't his actions that caused darkness in the first place. And it's also not his actions that are causing light. Oh, I love that. Mm. And Elie Wiesel has a, has a quote related to, to this Midrash. He says, God gave Adam a secret and that secret was not how to begin, but how to begin again. Mm. And that feels really mm. fruitful for yeah. this, for, you know, for this story, for yeah. like this sort of dawn of a new idea of how the world works, <laughs> yeah. you know, coming into being. And also for, for all of us, as we move through the darkest days of the year and, and even if we don't consciously think the world is ending, some people are really that impacted by this much dark that it, it feels yeah. like spiritually, like things yeah. are things are dying, things are ending, and that we await this we await this time to begin again. Lovely. Yeah. Amy, thank you for that. We did it! The we first it. reading. <laughs> we did it Yay! through John Wood. Yeah. We did it. We did it. Amy, thanks so much for reading this text with me. I really appreciate oh, it. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. And I will see you in a couple of days. All right. See you then. All right. Bye. Bye. Thanks for joining us for this week's episode of Bible Worm. If you've enjoyed this free podcast, we hope you'll help us keep it going by joining our Patreon for as little as $4 per month. You can also sign up for other goodies like early access, video lectures, weekly liturgies, and more. Visit patreon.com slash Podcast for details. Bibleworm is produced by Bobby Williamson and edited by Joel and Laura Becker. Our theme song is sung by Colin Bagby. We're grateful to our many supporters for helping us keep the podcast going. A special thank you to our executive producer, Fox Valley Presbyterian Church in Geneva, Illinois, and to our newest supporter, John Roman. Join us again next week as we continue with the Gospel of John, reading chapter 1, verses 19 through 34. Until then, keep on digging.